Our guest's been studying human happiness and the secret to it for decades. Dr Robert Walding is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Now, this study first began in 1938 with 228 Harvard students with researchers collecting data on their medical and mental health. In the 1970s, another 450 inner-city residents joined the study as it looked to diversify its subjects. It's the world's longest-running research into happiness, and it suggests friendship and connections help us to live longer and be happier. There's no simple recipe, Dr. Waldinger says. Happiness will wax and wane over the course of a life. Yes, it makes a difference if you can have your basic needs met. But we'll look at what some of the essentials are, and it always comes back, it seems, to connection. He's co-authored a book called The Good Life and How to Live It with Mark Schultz. He's presented a TED Talk which has over 24 million views. Plenty of people, you see, are on the lookout for what will bring them happiness. Dr. Walding is with us from Boston. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. New Zealanders are very familiar with the Dunedin Longitudinal Study. It's been going since the 1970s. Uh, it's just had a change. It's, it's beloved uh, long-term head uh, died recently, leaving a tremendous, yes, I just uh, heard. tremendous legacy. Yeah. Uh, so we're familiar with the concept. Can you explain a bit more about the Harvard Study of Adult Development? Yes, and actually I've been a great admirer of the Dunedin Study for quite some time, um, because these studies are rare. We're kind of a small, a small group of stragglers, researchers who study the same people over decades, over entire lifetimes. So the Harvard study, as you said in your very accurate introduction, um, is one of the longest studies of this kind that's ever been done, um, starting with these two groups, a group of Harvard College students in 1938, and a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, and not just their poorest neighborhoods, but the most disadvantaged families, like families, you know, beset by domestic violence and severe parental illness and lots and lots of problems. And the question, actually, for both studies, for the privileged Harvard group and the underprivileged inner city group was, how do young people stay on good developmental paths and thrive as they get into adulthood. And so the question was really not about what goes wrong, which is what we usually study in this kind of research, but what goes right and how can we predict who's going to do well? And so that's what made the study radical in 1938 when it began. And and I just want to say that We've added women. We brought in all the spouses and we brought in all the second generation, more than half of whom are women. So it's no longer just a study of men. Well done. One would hope that would happen at some point. <laughs> some point yes, along the actually, way. <laughs> many, of the, many of the women, when we finally asked them to join, said, well, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly is. Uh, one, one thing that is remarkable, and this happened with the Dunedin study as well, is the level of cooperation from the original cohort and their offspring. So this is actually rolled through to the children of the originals. Is it going through to the grandchildren as well, Robert? Well, we don't think we are going to do the grandchildren because the youngest grandchild is in grade school, 
like maybe seven years old, and the oldest grandchild is in his 50s. And so the concept of a generational study stops being useful at that point. But we are still collecting data on our second generation, even as we speak. And we're studying some of the big questions we've always studied about mental health, physical health, relationships, work life. But we're also studying what happened to people during the pandemic. We're studying how people are using digital media. So some of the other big questions that are more recent are part of what we're collecting data about. Well, there's so much in there. Health, employment, details of friends and their spouses, religious beliefs, how they vote, how they felt about the birth of their children, what they worry about at night, and a heap more. Your mission now is to draw out for us what you believe some of the key findings are. Yes. Well, one of the key findings will not be a surprise to any of your listeners. Uh, It's that if we take care of our health, it really matters for living longer and staying healthier. So what that means is, you know, getting exercise, eating well, not abusing alcohol or drugs, not using tobacco, um, all those things make a huge difference. But the surprise for us was when we found that the people who stayed healthiest and lived the longest had the warmest connections with other people. And that was a surprise because, you know, if you think about it, having better connections with others, warmer relationships, that would make you happier, sure. But how could the quality of your relationships make it more or less likely that you'd get heart disease or type 2 diabetes or arthritis? Like, how could that be possible? And then many research groups began to find the same thing. And we began to understand that this was a a fact, a scientific fact. So now, over the last 10 years in our lab, we've been investigating how this works. How do relationships actually get into the body and change our physiology? One word that comes to mind is cortisol. What are the others that are relevant well, cortisol, you said? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, yes, and you're you're right on target. So the best hypothesis we have is that it has to do with stress. That, you know, we're, we're all subject to stress often every day. Um, stress can be mild. Stress can be severe. And what relationships seem to do is they regulate our stress. They help us manage stress. So You know, for example, if I have something happen to me that's upsetting today, I can feel my body rev up. My heart rate goes up. um, My blood pressure goes up. I start to sweat. And then that's normal. That's the fight or flight response that we are meant to have to deal with danger and stress. But then the body is meant to go back to equilibrium. Now, if I can go home and call someone on the phone or, or talk to my partner about my day and the upsetting event, I can literally feel my body calm down. And what we think happens is that people who don't have good connections with others don't have that ability to calm down. And so they stay in a kind of low-level fight-or-flight mode with higher levels of circulating cortisol, as you say. 
um, higher levels of inflammation throughout the body. And that we think that these changes gradually break down many different body symptoms, which is how, you know, the absence of good relationships could give us heart disease and arthritis. And conversely, when we do have good connections, even anonymous ones, we'll get a surge of oxytocin, say, or we will get a surge of other positive chemicals that make us feel good and again help regulate that chemical activity in the body. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, that was a surprise. There's been good research now that shows that, you know, the person who gets you your coffee in the coffee shop in the morning, or the person who uh, rings you up for your groceries as you're going through the grocery line, that um, chats with those people actually give us little hits of well-being, as you say. And that so that even the, the relationships that we think of as inconsequential turn out to matter for our well-being. And so one of the things we talk about is that actually talking to strangers is a very good practice for our well-being. I've often referred to this, the act of letting a car in, you know, it's coming off a side street or it's trying to change lanes, will give you a little well-being buzz instead of the stress buzz of trying to shut it out, you know, shut it out. These little things... And another thing is, I think uh, what we we would call them dairy owners. You would call them a drugstore in the states, the small store on the corner. Uh, yes. Sometimes these interactions are all a person might have in a day, and so yeah. important to to their well being. Because what the study shows is the nature of the interaction or the nature of the relationship is doesn't need to be as specific. It does, it's not necessarily a brilliant spousal relationship that will make you happy. It's having enough across the board. Um, and can, can you explain more about the micro elements of this connection to other people? Yes, and that's really important. For example, we don't have to live with anyone. We don't have to have a romantic partner to get these benefits. One of the things we do find is that most of us need at least one person in the world who we feel would be there in times of need. So we asked our original participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And we asked them to list everybody. Most people could list several people. Some people could not list anybody on the planet who they could call if they were scared or in need. And so we think that all of us need that, but that could be anyone. It could be a family member, a friend. Um, And then in addition, there are all these other relationships um, that are not our nearest and dearest, but nevertheless give us lots of benefit. Work relationships can be very powerfully impactful for our well-being. They can, and as we said, uh, a sport relationship will be another, and again, it's not necessarily we're bonded because we're trying to win the Rugby World Cup. It could be we're bonded because we sit in the pub and have a beer and talk about the rugby, and the interaction is what matters. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that's right. It It doesn't have to be that we have to confide our most intimate secrets to each other to get these benefits. Some people... We have fun with, we play sport with, we 
um, watch mindless television with, and we just enjoy being together, that all of these things are part of the benefits of human connection. Loneliness uh, now considered to be as bad for your health as smoking. There is a loneliness epidemic. The UK has introduced a minister for loneliness. Listening to what would help mitigate that, what are some of the things you would point to that people can do practically or that we can do for others if they are too shy or already locked in a, in a bit of a cycle of, of negativity? Could you posit some advice or have you seen in the study some people who've shown an eff- efficacy in this? Yes. The people who were particularly good at this were the people who took small actions, but quite often. So little actions like, you know, reaching out to a friend uh, to say, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. Um, Making it a priority to have coffee with someone who you want to make sure you keep in your life. And so once a week or once a month or, you know, just a few times a year, but just making sure it happens. Now, some of us are shy, as you say, and some of us are lonely. And so we need help from others. You may know people who are lonely. And so for you, the encouragement would be reach out to those people and you will be amazed at how grateful people are when you do reach out. Uh, For some of us, there's less fear involved. There's there's less of a hurdle to overcome. And and if you're one of those people, share it. It's a very generous act to reach out to someone who has a harder time with this. People are extroverts or introverts. People have different senses of self-worth. And if you're someone who's confident, you've no idea what you can do if you reach out to someone who is less so. Let's talk about a couple of other um matters. Uh, well, let's actually stay with that because we are all on a spectrum, both in our confidence in building relationships, but also in how much we need. Some people very happy on their own. I think I've used this comment too many times, listeners, sorry, but um, Dame Jane Goodall making the point very clearly, there's a big difference between being alone and lonely. She knows a bit about exactly. being alone, although she did have the great acts yes. around. Um, so we're all on a spectrum. And what? how do we work out or how do we know what is right for us? Is the answer simply, we will have that sense of secure connection. We will have a sense of happiness. And if we're absent, it, we need a bit of a fitness program. Well, it is a, it's an important question. And I think each of us needs to check in with ourselves. You know, am I a person who gets refueled by having a lot of alone time? And perhaps I'm a person who finds parties exhausting and crowds just terrifying, right? And so maybe I'm that kind of person. And so I just need a few, a very small number of relationships that I keep up and take care of, right? And then there's the other end of the spectrum where, you know, the extrovert gets all their energy from being with other people. And those people need a lot of people around. And so I think, and and there's nothing right or wrong. There's nothing healthier or less healthy about either ends of those spectrums. So the question is, what do I need personally? And how can I have that? And then the question, which gets to the loneliness issue is, am I as connected 
to other people as I want to be. If I am, you know, Jane Goodall says, I'm fine being on my own. And that's great. You know, that's what she needs. Other people need more. And there are ways to develop more relationships if you're someone who wants more and feels that you don't have enough. Uh, do you want to elaborate on those? I'd be glad to. So there's there's actually research on this, that we find that one of the easiest ways to make friends is to run into the same people over and over again, and particularly around an activity that you share. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, in the US, we talk about water cooler conversations, these kind of, you know, you at work, you have this gathering place where people come either to get their water or to get their coffee. And that you see people there again and again, and you might strike up a conversation. And the research shows that if you volunteer for activities that you enjoy, for example, you might join a a gardening club, you might join a football league, um, you might join a group that's working to reduce climate change. Um, any of those things is a place where you could see the same people again and again, and you share an interest. And the fact that you share an interest means you have a natural place to start up conversations with people you don't know yet. And what they find when they do research on this is that these are the places where people are more likely to develop one or two or three deeper conversations and eventually friendships, sometimes romances. So it's building the team and building friendships uh, ahead of them becoming potentially more intimate or them becoming that person you can rely on no matter what. You make the point that this does require an effort, and we were talking about the extroverts versus the introverts, the confident versus the non, the unconfident. Human beings, many of us, are a little programmed towards the path of least resistance, whether it comes to yes. physical yes. or mental energy exertion, but yeah. also in this exertion. Um, and and it's easy to stay home maybe and watch the TV than to go out to be among strangers. But this is your part of the equation of making it happen for you, yeah? Yes, yes. And and I think the first step is just to notice what you mentioned, which is that we do have a little bit of resistance and that that's not bad. But then to say, okay, I'm going to overcome this resistance because when I do get off the couch and turn off the television and go to that party, I usually end up having a good time. Or if I do go for this activity with this friend, I usually end up feeling better. Um, can I tell you about a study that's that's useful in this regard? Please. They, they, they did a study in the city of Chicago where people spend a lot of time commuting on the commuter train. And they randomly assigned people to one of two things. Either your job during your morning commute was to do what you normally do, be on your phone, listen to music, do whatever you do. The other group was assigned to talk to a stranger. And the people who were assigned to talk to a stranger told the researchers, we don't think we're going to enjoy this at all. So then everybody completed their assignment. And afterwards, they asked people, well, how, how do you feel now? The people who talked to a stranger were much happier than the people who did what they do every morning on the train. And so what we realize is that 
we are often bad at understanding what's going to make us happy. And that when we can recognize that resistance to to engaging, to reaching out and overcome it, it ends up making us happier. Robert Walding is our guest, co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness, which happens to be uh, the Harvard study of adult development, 27 and a half minutes past 10 it is on 9 to noon. There are other matters to discuss, um, one of them being the life course of happiness. Unrealistic to feel happy all the time. And does our attitude towards where we're at in life, what's happening with the business, the kids, the marriage, whatever else, um, just has to be part of our experience of life? How do we stay quote-unquote happy when very stressful or trying or sad things are happening? Well, as you say, we don't stay happy all the time. You know, sometimes people will say to me, well, you must be happy all the time because you study happiness. And no, of course I'm not. No human being on the planet is happy all the time. So to your question, we don't stay happy, but what we can do is broaden our horizon. So let's say it's an upsetting time. And I would say right now in the world, it is an upsetting time. And I have times in my life that are very upsetting that one of the antidotes can be not to push away the unhappiness, not to pretend the situation isn't there, that's difficult, but to broaden it, to broaden it to all the things that are not wrong. And this this turns out to be gratitude practice, that if you think about all the things in your life at this moment that are not wrong, you can be reminded of the bigger picture. I have a roof over my head. I have food to eat. I have people to be with who I care about and who care about me. I have work that matters to me. That, that yes, life is hard, but we can call up this bigger picture of what's right. We can call up the, the part of the glass that's half full when the glass looks totally empty. And Robert, it occurs to me this study began in 1938, so in the thick of the Depression, really, and about to go into the Second World War and the awful, dreadful events that were to be revealed by the end of it. Your uh, your, your um, study participants have been through the 1960s where we were utterly convinced, with good reason, that the end of the world was nigh, that a nuclear yeah. uh, annihilation was nigh. Yeah. It, it, it is... Two observations. One, it is part of the human condition to think that the end of the world is nigh. It probably has been forever. But the second, we are living in generations where that is literally existentially possible. What have you learned? What have you learned from your, well, human participation anyway? What have you learned from your your students and your studies over these this lifetime of events about how they managed existential threat? Yes. Well, we we literally asked people, how did you get through the Great Depression? Because they were all children during the Great Depression. How did you get through World War II? Particularly because the Harvard men were all soldiers in World War II. Many of them saw terrible combat. And everyone to a person answered in their own way something about their relationships. So many people talked about the Great Depression and said, We didn't have enough food to eat. We had nothing, but the neighbors shared everything they had. We banded together. The soldiers would say, I was able to keep going because of the letters I got from people at home. I was able to keep going because of my fellow soldiers. Um, 
that everybody talked about the sustaining quality of their connections with other people. And that seems to be essential when we're sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, the world is hopeless and everything is going to have a terrible end. All roads lead back to that connection. The different kinds of happiness, are we some more prone to it than others? Uh, there's the hedonic well-being. We all love that feeling when we're having a great time, we're around people we love, we're doing something we love, and there's the euphoria that comes with that. One imagines yeah. that kind of happiness ebbs and flows a little bit more from the other kind, which is one perhaps summed up as being um, having a life of purpose or, or, or meaning. Again, what have you learnt from your participants about the relevance of each kind of happiness? Yes. Well, we learned that everybody, we all want some of each, right? Like we all want hedonism, a little bit of hedonism, that fun, that delicious meal, whatever it might be, the momentary pleasures. We all want that and need that. And most of us want a sense that life is basically good and meaningful, my life. And what we find is that some people prioritize one more than the other, and some of us prioritize the fun more than the long-term meaning and purpose at different points in our lives, right? When I was a teenager, I wanted more fun than meaning and purpose. Now, later in life, I'm really thinking a lot about, is my life meaningful? And so it can change as we go through our lives. I'm loving this person amongst our feedback saying, people are what stress me. Being alone is what makes me happy. That's exactly what yeah. we're discussing. We're all different on this. Uh, yes. The other, um, the other matter that I wanted to discuss that's really timely, I mean, you mentioned the digital stuff you're, that you're studying now and the pandemic stresses, which, again, I think history shows often leads to an economic stress and, and, and to a disruption. Um, yes. But the other matter to mention is the particular economic stresses. And again, these can sometimes be relative. We, we, we began with the Great Depression with this study. But at the moment, there is a time where people, the, the real stress is not being able to provide, right, for oneself and particularly for others. And is yes. there a minimum sense of um, um, ability to provide, ability to sustain, that is pretty essential to happiness uh, it's going to make is. it damn hard if it's not there. There is, exactly. And and that's it. It's not that money makes us happy as we earn more and more. That turns out not to be true. But until we get our basic needs met, until we have food security and shelter, and we can educate our children and get health care for our families, all of that. So until in the U.S., the estimate was $75,000 a year for a household, but it varies a lot. But, but until we get those basic needs met, each dollar, each increase in income makes us happier. But then if I were to make $75 million a year, it wouldn't make me that much happier. And that's, that's an important thing to remember because sometimes we can imagine that, oh, if I if I really become rich, then I'll be happy. Not so. But boy, income inequality and poverty is a recipe for unhappiness. And that's why my hope is that all of us work to reduce poverty and to reduce the inequality because with it comes so much greater well-being. Just finally, it's your conclusion, uh, and as succinctly as you would, it's never too late to be happy. 
And can you say that categorically from the study? We can say it because of the life stories we studied, you know, thousands of lives, right? And what we would see is that people who were sure they were never going to find friends, they were never going to find love, they were never going to be happy, they were sure of it. And then it changed. People in their 60s and 70s, even 80s, found friends for the first time or love. Things turned around. And so we, we know it's never too late because of all the lives we've studied. Thank you, Robert Waldinger, with Mark Schultz. He's co-author The Good Life and How to Live It. It is, we said, uh, this is drawn from knowledge gleaned from the longest-running study, longitudinal study, the Harvard study. 1938 it started.